Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we're taking a deep dive into an ecosystem very near and dear to my heart. If you live up north, you'll see red spruce, picea rubens in a lot of places, but if you follow the Appalachian Mountains down south, they get rarer and rarer. These trees and the ecosystems they comprise follow the mountains south as the glaciers push them that way. And they've been kind of hanging on in these isolated mountain islands ever since. But over the last hundred years or so, these ecosystems have taken a real hit due to logging and fire and a bunch of other disturbances. But to try to understand how to restore them, you kind of have to understand the soils. And as you're going to hear, these trees are ecosystem engineers that interact with and influence and create their own soil type, which then helps foster more red spruce and red spruce dependent species. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Jim Thompson. He is, as he describes, a soil geographer, and he has a fascinating perspective on the system and what can be done potentially in the future to restore it and potentially even help mitigate climate change in the long run. I'm not going to do it any justice in this intro, but before we get to that, did you know I have a book? It's called In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants. You can help support the podcast by buying a copy of this book, and you can find that in the show notes for this episode over at indefenseofplants.com slash podcast, so consider picking up a copy today. But that's enough out of me. Let's get into this conversation because it's incredible. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jim Thompson. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Jim Thompson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you today, but first, let's start with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Well, I'm, I'm Jim Thompson. I'm a professor of soil science at West Virginia University, um, and here at, at WVU, I have a teaching and research appointment, but also do some service related to um, the thing that I love, soils. <laughs> And uh, so I teach several classes, but also do research um, on on mostly the soils of, of West Virginia. Excellent. Beautiful state. Appalachia. Yeah. Great, great area to be working in. But what brought you to soils in the first place? I mean, were you always into soils? Were you kind of a geologist? Where did it now, all begin for you? So I, I um, maybe like a lot of uh, young people, I was interested in science and I was interested in, in the environment and didn't know exactly what I wanted to do uh, specifically within those two realms. Uh, really enjoyed chemistry in, in, in high school and actually started out as a chemistry major in, huh. in college. Wow. But, I, but uh, I didn't see myself as, uh, as a, a lab chemist, you know, in a white lab coat, <laughs> pouring chemicals together and things <laughs> like that. Sure. I, I still had that interest in the environment. And, um, at one point, uh, I heard about the uh, uh, agronomy, which is the study of crops and soils. Mm. And um, and I, at, as I thought about it and learned about it, uh, I realized that, or I came to the conclusion that uh, agronomy or soil science specifically would be one way where I could combine my interest in science and my interest in the environment cool. and it's only over time that i've realized how much that um that a an appreciation of 
soils is critical to how we understand our environment and, and land use and land management and, and climate change and so many other important environmental issues. Totally. Yeah, that's a fun trajectory, too. And I'm sure, you know, being in soils, chemistry still gets to factor into what you're doing on a day to day basis in some level. Yes. Yes. M maybe not as much as 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 I thought originally. <laughs> I thought I would be a soil chemist. Oh, wow. Um, OK. But I've, 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 I'm probably more of a soil geographer. Now Interesting. Than, than than a soil chemist. But I still get to use my chemistry as I under as I work to understand soil development and, and soil change over time. Oh, that's great. I honestly, I wish I had way more exposure to soil science than I even got. I mean, I took getting into a soil based lab to really get exposed to, you know, cycles of carbon and nutrients and water and all that and how that affects like the formation and all that. It, it's just it. We I feel robbed because I love plants. I Everything I do focuses on plants. And boy, there's few things with the exception of some epiphytes that don't factor soil in there somewhere. Yet I feel so estranged from it in so many ways yeah yeah I, I i i in some ways i would i would i i would turn that around and say that as, <laughs> particularly as i've gotten more involved in some of the work that that i've been doing over the last 10 years is that i don't have enough of a understanding and appreciation for plants because of that you know as you as you're sort of implying there that that really tight relationship between plants and soils and, and they neither operates in a vacuum <laughs> right? And, and, and they depend upon one another and they influence one another so much that, that not only understanding soils helps you understand plants, but understanding the plants helps you understand the soil. Right, right. Yeah. And it's, it's a growing appreciation. And it's one of those things that makes me look at everything we're doing in a different light. And I like that because it makes you see the world in a way that's more meaningful, I think, in the long run. But then it also has that other effect where it can bum you out when you realize just how much we take soil for granted as mm -hmm. a species, really. I don't think you can mm -hmm. limit it just to America or something like that. Yeah. No, it is it is a undervalued uh, resource, both um, maybe in terms economically, but also um, uh, emotionally. That, that <laughs> right. we, we we do, as you say, take it for granted uh, when it is the most important. I'm biased. The most important <laughs> uh, natural resource we have. Certainly, because these things you, you mentioned formation, and I think it might be a foreign concept for people outside of the sciences, especially to think of like, oh, soils aren't something that just happen. They're not just there and they've always been there. Right. And that kind of gets at this interaction between life and the abiotic environment to to come together to make it's not just rocks and minerals. It's it's rocks and minerals plus life and all these yes. other things. Yeah. I, I, and that's one of the things that that I tell. And to try and emphasize is, uh, is the, the living component of, of the soil, you know, just in thinking in more broadly in terms of communicating about soil science is, right. is how, um, uh, whether it's 25% of the planet's biodiversity <laughs> is in the soil. Wow. Um, or that, uh, there are more living organisms in a teaspoon of healthy soil than there are people on the face of the earth Whew. there's just so much biological activity and and how that affects you know food webs and nutrient cycles and is it, and sometimes it's staggering to, to think <laughs> about 
right. uh, the, the, those those numbers and those scales. But right. And I'm sure there's some seriously inherent challenges to studying soil and what's going on in the soil, because it's not like you can put goggles on and dive underneath and start exploring like you would a body of water. Right. Yes. You, you kind of yes. have to dig and get your hands dirty and so many levels of puns there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's got to be some inherent challenges to try to figure that out. And I think that probably removes us a little bit more on a day to day life from what's going on underneath our feet. Yes, I, I, I agree again. And I, I, I think you make a really uh, important uh, observation there is that because we can't see the soil everywhere, you have to be very purposeful and selective as where you're going to make an observation, where you're going to dig a hole or take a sample. Whereas if we're studying whether it's bodies of water, like you said, or or plant communities you or 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 surficial geology, I can see all the trees in the forest, <laughs> but I can't see the soil that's underneath them unless I purposely make the effort to 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 make that that observation. And and to make it even more complicated is that if you uh, when you make those observations, you, you when you dig in, into the soil, it not only is it changing from place to place, it's changing the deeper that you go into Ooh. the in, into the ground and so the 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 variability is 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 quite significant um i i had a i had a uh a mentor from from when i was in college would say that uh soil science it it's not rocket science it's harder (laughs) Um, i mean think about how much energy and time and money gets put into rocket science for good reason. I enjoy good space stuff, but yeah. Yeah. And, and to bring it back to home, I mean, again, this dependence on it, it, we'd be better off uh, paying a little bit more attention. And I can't tell you how much in my own research, you know, even being in a soils lab, I go, man, if I could just understand the medium these plants are growing in, I'd probably learn more about the plants in the process of understanding it too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. And so you mentioned you're a soil geographer. Unpack that a little bit. Like, what what does that entail? So, I, I suppose the 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 proper term uh, in in soil science circles is I'm a pedologist, Ooh. where I I study the the genesis, the classification, the morphology of soils. Um, but when you say pedologist, most people don't quite <laughs> quite grasp that. But so, soil geographer has a little bit more yeah. of a, a, a connection that people can make to that. In, in part because my interest in soil science is studying why soils are different from one place to another, mm. what has caused those differences to exist, and how we can use the knowledge of those differences that exhibit uh, in soils across the landscape, how we can use that information to make better decisions about land use, land management, in this case, forest restoration, but uh, any other decision related to soils, how we how, how that variability in soils is, is, is needs to be accounted for. Definitely. And perfect segue right there is the reason we connected in the first place to mm-hmm. have this conversation is because of some work you've done with colleagues on looking at really how soils form and what they can tell you about what was and what 
can happen in the future, right? And and so you've yes. kind of interacted with this amazing tree, the red spruce. I mean, mm-hmm. if you haven't experienced the red spruce ecosystem, it's hard to kind of put into context what it really feels like. But where where did you start looking or getting interested in this interaction between this tree, the ecosystem they comprise, and the soil that supports it all? Sure. It's probably been maybe 10 years ago or so. Okay. Um, it And it started with... Um, uh, an observation that a colleague made working in the higher elevation uh, forested ecosystems of the Monongahela National Forest mm-hmm. here in, in West Virginia. And I had been working closely with the, the, the Forest Service and the, and the Natural Resources Conservation Service uh, on, on different projects in, in central Appalachia, particularly on the Monongahela National Forest. So I'd been studying forest soils with, with uh, the students who, 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 who work with me uh, here at WVU uh, for already for a number of years. But it, it took an observation from a colleague with the, the NRCS who, um, out working on the forest, found a soil that he wasn't expecting to find with certain properties, particularly a soil with a really thick organic surface layer. Okay. Um, which wasn't common in that part of the, uh, in, in that part of the Monongahela national forest. And the more he looked, he, he started seeing more and more of these soils with these, not just these thick, uh, what we'd call O horizons, the organic surface layers, but, very distinctive uh, characteristics in the subsoil. Mm. Um, and they weren't the types of soils that showed up in the, um, in the soil maps okay. for, for the area that the, that the NRCS has had produced over the years. And um, so it wasn't the type of soil that w- was normally uh, to be seen in, in, in that area. Hmm. And that's what sort of got not just me, but my NRCS and Forest Service colleagues starting to look at why these soils were present. And um, and it turns out that the, that the, those soils with that very distinctive uh, set of horizons, the, the, the morphology of those soils is very closely related to um those interactions with the red spruce uh, ecosystem and how the red spruce chemically alter the soil. Hmm. And, and, and one of the ways is that it tends to build up a thick O horizon, that thick organic surface layer, but it also changes the types of minerals and other features that you see in the subsoil. Oh, and what is particularly fascinating and about this again and and this is where the soil geography maybe comes in is that um, those particular features which form at least in this part of the world only under red spruce communities and other ericaceous plants rhododendron and 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 such um, those features persist even after the red spruce forest has been uh, disturbed 
and, and, and removed. Oh. And so, and this is true with many soil properties that, that the, the soils really form a long-term record of the history of a site. Yeah. And so one of the ways we, 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 um, label that or describe it is that the, the soils have a memory <laughs> I like of, that. of the past and it's recorded in, in, in those physical chemical pro, uh, properties of, of the soil. And what, what not just me, but some of my other soil science colleagues with the forest service and the NRCS, what we realized is that, that these soils were recording the presence of red spruce, even though that red spruce may have been um, harvested and then burned over a hundred years ago. Whoa. Okay. So you have this cool detective story kind of playing out, right? Like you go and see something unique or different that you're not expecting and they go, well, I wonder why that is. And by the sounds of it, there was no real indication immediately looking around going, oh, it's because these trees are here. Like you said, there's a history of it, but that's Mm -hmm. not readily apparent. And that in and of itself is cool. But then to think of plants having that much of an impact on Mm -hmm. the soil in and of itself is amazing because again, I think we kind of take for granted they grow in it. Yeah, they're grabbing nutrients and water from it, but they're also affecting it in a big way. Very much. And Very so much. what is special about red spruce and, as you mentioned, some ericaceous stuff that does this? I mean, is there something going on with the biology of these organisms that really gives back to what that soil underneath? It, it seems like it's one of those sort of chicken and egg scenarios that gets mm-hmm. my head turning in all different directions. Is like, does it start with the spruce or is there something about, you know, that kind of thing? So there's there's parts of that environment that favor the red spruce. Okay. Now I'm not going to claim to be any form of of sure, sure. Of, of ecologist or biologist. <laughs> That's I, fair. I, I I probably know just enough to be dangerous, as they say. <laughs> How fun! But the red spruce ecosystem is somewhat favored in those higher elevations where it's um, often too cold uh, or too wet or too acidic for some of the other more common. Uh, lower elevation tree species. Right. And so the, the, the red spruce is a very, uh, slow growing, um, a forest type a tree. And, um, and so, uh, but it is able to, um, uh, tolerate some of those harsher conditions in the highest elevations where it's like I said, colder and wetter. Mm hmm. Such that, you know, uh, pre, you know, the mid 1800s and, and earlier, it was one of the dominant tree species in the higher elevations of central Appalachia. Right. Including this part of West Virginia and the Monongahela National Forest uh, as it is today. Um, but the historic logging and then fires and, and, and other other disturbances in the late 18, early 1900s just decimated the red spruce forest. Yeah. Um, there, there are different estimates, but um, anywhere from uh, 200,000 to 600,000 hectares of red spruce forest. So up to a, a one and a half million acres of red spruce. And today it's closer to um, 20,000 hectares. It's Dang. about 
it's about 10% of its historic extent wow. um, 100 plus years ago. But the, the nature of that red spruce in terms of how it, it, it was favored in these environments, but then once it was established, it actually started then changing the soils right. uh, to even uh, to, to create an even more favorable <laughs> environment for itself. Um, and one of the ways it does that is, is the, the nature of the, the litter of the red spruce is it's, it's relatively slow to decompose. Ah. And so you build up this, this thick organic layer at the surface. Now, when you throw in that it's, it's much colder at these higher elevations and, and, um, you get a lot of the, the orographic, rainfall and so it tends to be very wet and humid as well as cold it pers- the, the organic matter in the soil can persist hmm. and then on top of that um, as that organic litter de- decomposes however slowly it does <laughs> that it it releases certain types of um, organic acids that then leach through the soil. Um, they tend to uh, grab onto or chelate iron and aluminum oh. in that process, and it and it the, that, those organic acids and those um, uh, iron and aluminum metals get translocated, leached down into the subsoil and accumulate in the subsoil. Huh. And it changes the morphology of the subsoil by making it one redder because of the iron oxides, but also you'll get some organic accumulations. Okay. Some often forms a, a thin band of, of high organic matter soil in the subsoil. And it changes some of the, the physical properties also of, of that of that soil material. And so it, it it has that very distinctive characteristic of the soil when you dig the the hole and, and describe <laughs> the different layers, you find that the, the, that subsurface organic matter and iron oxide accumulation that is very distinctive. And from our, our work, it, it's only under these red spruce communities um, where you get those types of soils forming. Fascinating. And I love that perspective because I've had people on the past, uh, on this podcast talk about, you know, plants living in gypsum or plants living in yes. ultramafic soils where those sorts of things are already present dealing with the conditions at the site. But here's yes. a really good example of how these sort of ecosystem engineering principles from an organism, just yeah. by the fact of its chemistry within its needles and the, the interaction with the abiotic way that it breaks down can actually alter soils in a big way down beyond where like the actual maybe physical influence of these trees is much, much less than it is at the surface or within that rhizosphere, right? Yes. Whew, that's remarkable. And it just goes to show you, like, you just kind of scratch away at the surface and then you realize how deep the story can go. And and yeah. these, these sort of, like, plants grow in soil, it's just the beginning of all of this sort of stuff. Wow. And so when you look at this sort of stuff, you mentioned the layer cake. You're kind of digging these holes, looking at these horizons. And I'm guessing that the time spans involved here are pretty great. Like to get to that point where you're seeing the accumulation of organic matter, the chelation of the iron. I mean, these are processes that don't happen 
in 20 years, right? Or, or is this like, there's a speed component of this that's probably pretty slow? <laughs> it, generally, for, for better or worse, most soil processes tend to uh, manifest themselves over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. It, take, it takes time. Now, the, the, those, those thick organic surface uh, layers, those tend to accumulate a little bit faster. Okay. Um, and so those are on the scale of um, 80, 100, hmm. 150 years where you can get some appreciable uh, accumulation of those O horizons, those organic surface layers. Right. The, those, those subsurface accumulations do take more time. Um, that's going to be in your hundreds to thousands of years, um, uh, maybe even longer, um, in, in terms of how long it takes for the imprint of that leaching and, and accumulation to, 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 to be visible. But at the same time, some of the evidence is that that organic matter that does accumulate in the subsoil is much more dynamic than mm. than we might think. So the the iron oxides, the aluminum oxides, those persist in the soil for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, even after the red spruce has been um, uh, removed. Right. Those O horizons, those will de- deteriorate. Those will decompose very quickly. And then on on top of that, often after the harvest of those those red spruce during the, the, the big cut of the, the late 18, early 1900s, then there were lots of fires that came mm. through. So any uh, a lot of that surface litter was just burned, yeah. sometimes burned down to, to bare rock Dang. Uh, from from the fires. Um, and so once once you cut off that source of organic matter at the surface, that organic matter that has built up in the subsoil will over time, not as rapidly, but will will degrade and, and decompose and, and be lost. Um, but yes, for, for the most part, we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of years <laughs> of, of, of influence of red spruce ecosystems to create those soils that we observe Today. Yeah, yeah, and it—I mean—just goes to show you that. I, I, first off, I should say I love plants and geology for the reason that, like, quick mm-hmm. is still measured in like the lifetime of a single human, and yeah. fast is like a few generations, or uh, you know. But when you think about the the ramifications of such a thing, like, yeah, my grandparents could have gotten here wasted the organic layer either through poor work or erosion or something like that and now it's still you know in my lifetime would probably take it to come back to anything remotely approaching that but that goes back to what you're saying is sort of seeing a signature of things sometimes a hundred years or so afterwards and so from this work from this realization that started with this like detective observation Mm -hmm. you now have something approaching sort of a predictive measure of of going to look for the history of these forests because yeah they weren't really necessarily writing down where things once were it's just kind of we cut it we moved on and Mm. the past is the past let's move forward right yeah yes so you know a a lot of the 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 initial efforts to um bring about the restoration of the red spruce ecosystem which is an important um goal of the, the U.S. Forest Service, but also 
uh, groups like the Nature Conservancy. And then here in West Virginia, we have the Central Appalachian Spruce Restoration Initiative, which is another nonprofit that works to restore the red spruce ecosystem. Uh, not, I, I don't think anybody's hoping for that uh, one and a half million acres right. of you know pre pre disturbance, but uh, a lot more than the 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 than the than the uh, the current extent sure. uh, is is the goal. But um, some of the initial efforts was were, was driven more by sort of the climate uh, relationship with mm. with red spruce. And, and so you could map out where the high elevations were, where those cold, uh, cold environments were. And that's where the red spruce restoration could be um, emphasized, if you will. Right. Um, but over the years, and there's been many people, not just soil scientists, but foresters and ecologists and, and plant scientists, who have been in, interested in this in the red spruce ecosystem in central Appalachia and also in southern Appalachia for for that matter too. Sure, yeah. Um. You know, you you go farther north into New York and New England and Canada. There's lots of red spruce. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but but the, the but the red spruce communities in in central and southern Appalachia they're sort of the refugia of 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 the the glacial uh, advances when, yeah. when, when, uh, these, these communities migrated farther South and into these high elevations. And as the, as the climate warmed, as the glaciers receded, they were, became isolated yeah. in these, in these higher elevation peaks. So the, the goal is, is to, 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 to restore the red spruce was was probably driven more by the you know look at those climate relationships and the elevation where where you'd expect to have the the, the spruce um, and there's been work with you know species distribution modeling and trying to mm. predict where this where the spruce might might occur but a lot of that's based on the current extent of spruce and using the current where spruce occurs today to predict where it could occur in the future through restoration. Right. And so where, where our efforts as soil scientists have come in is understanding and appreciating that link between the visible morphology of these soils that historically had red spruce, that if we find a quote unquote red spruce soil in an area that doesn't have red spruce today, that's an indicator to us that even though there's not a spruce within five miles <laughs> of here, that the only way that that soil developed those characteristics is under the influence of red spruce. Right. And so coming back to my interest in soil geography is that if we can map the extent of these, these uh, properties that we associate with the influence of red spruce, we can develop a map of what the historic extent of mm. that red spruce could have been. And more importantly, when we go out and dig a hole and see this red spruce influenced morphology, we now know that if it was good for red spruce a hundred years ago, it's probably still good for red spruce today. Nice. And so that would be a, a, a good candidate for a location to try and 
plant red spruce. Or if there's some red spruce in the understory, but not in the overstory, that would be a good candidate location for release of red spruce. Hmm. Like, you know, removing some of the competition, creating a canopy gap for that red spruce in the understory to move into the mid and eventually the, the overstory. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think it really kind of harkens into this idea that a species niche is more than just temperature and precipitation. And Mm -hmm. you may not be able to know what that N dimensional hyper volume of the niche is comprised of. But Mm -hmm. if you've got little bits and pieces that tell you something's there, you might start to unlock other reasons why spruce did well here. Historically, it might do well again. And you learn more about Mm -hmm. the system as a process. And remember, this is an ecosystem, not just the soil and the tree. It's everything else that comes with it. Yes. (laughs) Right. And so (laughs) when you go trying to understand this and and mapping soils, Mm -hmm. boy, I know what it's like to go out and look for plants that may or may not be there, but what's the process? I mean, is it going out and taking soil cores and just seeing, or or how do you, how do you approach this? For us, a lot of the work we do is digging holes. Nice. (laughs) Digging full on pits so we can see the full expression of of the changes that occur in that soil with depth and also laterally. Mm. Uh, and so there's nothing takes the place of a, of a, of a well dug uh, <laughs> hole in the ground. Nice. Um, you know, and so it's, you know, it's a, it's a hole that's, you know, almost a meter wide and a meter deep and, and exposing all of those, those naturally occurring layers um, uh, in, in the soil. So we can, could describe them and sample them and bring them back to the lab and do some more analysis uh, uh, as needed. Um, so it's just it's just a, a lot of digging. <laughs> um, uh, um, full disclosure: it's usually a graduate student that does the digging. Um, uh, uh, my, yep. My 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 days of being a a competent digger uh, may have maybe in the past. Um, <laughs> Pay, you got to pay your dues, though, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We've all done it. Yep. At least all, 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 all us soil scientists have, have taken a turn. Um, but, uh, you know, and so as a result, uh, you might get one, maybe on a good day, two observations a day. Wow. You know, by the time you and 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 to, and to make things worse in here in these high elevation red spruce ecosystems is. They tend to be very rubbly. Oh. And so not only is it the soil, but the rocks. And, yeah. and, and, and since we're working in, in the Monongahela National Forest, it, it's, you, might have to, you might have to hike a half hour before you get to the spot <laughs> where you want to dig your hole. Oh, joy. So it, it's, it's, it's complicated in that way, but um, you know, there's, there's a lot worse days, to, worse ways to spend a day Certainly. than hiking through the Mon National Forest and and digging a hole. Yeah, it keeps you keeps you active, right? <laughs> Chance to exercise some muscles besides the brain. Mm-hmm. But yeah, shout out to my buddy Ron who had to go out and refresh the soil uh, sampling pits for all the soils classes every <laughs> semester. You go, well, gotta go dig the hole again. <laughs> oh, that, that's that's why I I make this the students dig the hole when we get there. <laughs> Exactly. I, I shouldn't say dig the hole. They they refresh the soil pit when we when we arrive. That's fair. And not to mention, like not everyone's a hit, right? Like so, sometimes you're finding evidence. Other times, probably a lot of times, there's something else going on. 
Correct, correct. And and but for better or worse, from the the, the viewpoint of of the soul geography, um, both of those types of observations are, are valuable. If we find the, the the that that typical morphology associated with the red spruce, then then that's a, that's a positive uh, uh, site. But it's just as important to find the 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 sites where that evidence is lacking, so you know not just the presence but also the absence of of that spruce influence. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's real world species distribution modeling, right? I mean, yeah, you're gonna have exactly. a lot of misses, but the, those, those all are part of the data set itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whew, yeah. Yeah. It's not for the faint of heart, but also kind of exciting because I'm sure when you do finally get into the spots, you go, "Ooh, we got something here." Yes. Is it yeah. something you can detect with your eyes? I mean, is it there's you you know when you're getting it, or you really do have to bring the samples back to the lab to say for sure? Oh no, you you. As you're digging the hole, you start to see the the, the characteristics and know, um, not immediately, but um, I mean you'll you'll get some feedback right away if you see a, a nice thick yeah. organic surface layer. So you know you might be onto something at that point. But then as you start digging, you start to see um, just very typical morphology. Um, if, if, if there are any listeners out there who um, have some familiarity with soils and uh, uh, the, the term that we use is spotosol. Okay. Okay. And so if, if you know your 12 soil orders, um, it's, <laughs> I it's these, will not claim to know that. <laughs> it's the spotosol morphology that, that we're, we're seeking. And, and some of that starts to manifest itself within the upper you know, a uh, few inches sometimes even hmm. in, in, in terms of the, the colors, particularly that we see in the mineral soil. Oftentimes there's a, 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 a very pale, ashy okay. layer below that O horizon that is very typical of that leaching environment hmm. that is, that is uh, uh, created by those organic acids stripping uh, iron and aluminum from the surface and translocating it down into the subsoil. Interesting. Cool. I love the idea of sort of soil ID being similar to plant ID in terms of looking for those details that really stand out. It, it, there, there are similarities and, and, and a lot of soil identification is based on those visible characteristics that, that we see when we, when we expose the soil. But then there are certain things that you really do need to take back to the lab, do some analysis sure. to, to fine tune those, those, um, those categories. Right. And so in your experience working on this project, how thick can some of these organic layers actually be when you start digging that soil? Um, in it, it, it's not the common, um, sure. occurrence, but no, they can be, uh, a, a foot or more thick Whoa. Of, 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 of O horizon. Okay. So yeah. with that in mind, you know, obviously the red spruce ecosystems are very important for biology as it is today. But when I hear thick organic layers, lack of decomposition, low temperature, high humidity, those sorts of things, I start to think a lot about carbon sequestration. Yes. Would you suggest then that sort of looking at organic horizons this thick, that that's a 
probably a pretty considerable amount of carbon locked into the soil that would otherwise be going elsewhere. <laughs> yes. Uh, spot on. <laughs> cool. And that's where uh, some of our attention is, is being focused right now in terms of, of, of calculating what is the potential for, for carbon sequestration hmm. in these, these high elevation uh, forests if they are re- restored to having a more significant spruce component. Um, and so um, you know, we, we, we've been looking at not just that, that surface organic layer, but looking at the upper whole upper meter of the soil. Mm. Um, and, and so you can, um, uh, and I, I feel a little bad here. I keep switching between English <laughs> units and metric units. Quite all right. Um, <laughs> they can handle you know, it. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, but, but we're looking at, uh, a hundred kilograms of carbon per square meter wow. in some of these, in some of these forests, um, with, you know, the vast majority of that being in that O horizon yeah. at the surface, you know, upwards of, of 75% of that carbon is in, in the O horizon. Okay. But there's still a significant amount of carbon in the subsoil. Mm. And so we do think that, that, um, red spruce restoration would bring about, um, some potential significant amounts of carbon uh, sequestration in, in, in these soils and in these, these ecosystems with, um, particularly the buildup of those, those, those O horizons at the surface, which can be, will vary in thickness, but maybe equally important is that organic material that accumulates in the subsoil. Right. Cause that's, that is even more recalcitrant carbon. Yeah. Um, it, it's not going to um, be decomposed and lost as quickly as any changes to the surface management might influence that, that O horizon at the surface. Sure. Basically, once you pull it down, it's not going anywhere very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's exciting, too, because you think about all of the impetus and and sort of support being thrown behind tree planting initiatives, and I'm all for it, but it's got to be the right trees in the right place. And here's a really good example of with the right kind of detective work, the right people doing the investigation, a targeted sort of approach, restoring an ecosystem, not just planting pulpwood in a grassland and destroying grassland biodiversity. It's, It's restoring an ecosystem and doing a lot of good things along the way. And, yes. and really kind of that recognition that what's happening on the surface is affecting what's going on below the surface of the soil, but they're all integrated with one another. I love it. Me too. <laughs> I'd, I'd hope so. It seems it would be counterintuitive to put this much energy into something you hated, but this is, this is fantastic. So where do you want to take this in the, the coming years? Where do you see your input kind of uh, focused? With, with this particular uh, project... I think there's a couple um, avenues that we still want, wish to pursue. One of them is 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 answering, or at least attempting to answer that that question that 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 you were asking is what is the carbon sequestration potential mm. of this red spruce ecosystem? Um, f- for better or worse, we've been focused mainly on 
just one subsection of the of the Monongahela forest uh, on a, a particular geology. Mm. Um, but we know that these 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 spotosols and these these red spruce influenced soils uh, um, occur uh, in, on an even wider geographic footprint here in central Appalachia. And so part of it is to get a sense of what is the carbon sequestration potential of, of these of these particular soils if we were to restore a greater extent of the red spruce forest, but also is to extend that that mapping effort to um, get a better grasp of in different parts of the national forest and different parts of, of this part of central Appalachia where um, where that spruce restoration potential is mm -hmm. greater because of that those historic imprints of, of red spruce on the soils. Excellent. Well, very exciting stuff. I, I look mm -hmm. forward to seeing more work. But if people want to kind of keep a finger on the pulse of what you, your lab, and your colleagues are up to, where do you recommend they go looking? Oh. It's okay if there's not a spot, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we don't have like a, a, a particular clearinghouse for, for that. Quite all right. So I think I think my answer to that would be um, I would I would encourage people to visit the Central Appalachian Spruce Restoration Initiative, or CASRI, as we call it here. And, and they are more of a, uh, uh, a go-to um, source for all the work that's being done on this amazing ecosystem. Excellent. Not just the work related to red spruce soils, but, but also uh, other efforts, not just, and, and that goes from, you know, uh, actual boots on the ground. Hey, let's plant some red spruce, but also some of the work that's being done to understand that red spruce ecosystem better. And, and particularly the, you know, the, the native plant species and animals that, that call the red spruce ecosystem home. Excellent. Well, I will put up links to that and anything else you can think of between now and the episode comes out. But Jim, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us about this. And man, keep it up. This is really exciting work. And I'm, I'm so thankful for you and your colleagues for doing it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to, to be able to tell you about our story of the red spruce soils. Great. Well, keep in touch. You're welcome back on at any time. And I'm sure this is going to have some exciting outcomes in the not too distant future. So thank you again. Thank you. All right. Cheers. All right. Fascinating stuff. I always love getting a soil-based perspective on the world of plants and the ecosystems they comprise, as well as how that can affect more than just the life in the soil, but everything surrounding it, including the health of our planet. I thank Dr. Thompson for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, please check the show notes for all of the relevant links for the things we talked about in this episode, as well as all previous episodes. All of those links can be found over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. And while you're there, consider supporting the show in a multitude of ways. You can become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants and support the show each and every month. I literally couldn't be doing this without my patrons. Speaking of which, I have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Tom and Don, who signed up at the producer credit level. They are getting all of the kickbacks you can get for supporting the show, and they're giving it a future. So thank you to both of them. You can also pick up some of our customizable merch. 
a copy of my book, and stickers. And all of those links can be found in the show notes at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast as well. Seriously, the show doesn't have a future if you don't support it. So thank you to everyone who has and consider supporting it today. At the very least, hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.